This is Macro Horizons, episode 113. Hashtag ship still stuck. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 29th. In yet another nod to what awaits us on the other side of the pandemic, commodity markets remain focused on the ever-given saga as we're reminded that the Suez waters run shallow, and apparently much narrower than the length of the average container ship. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, what was most notable in the Treasury market was what didn't happen as opposed to what we did see. Specifically, we did not see a material challenge of the upper bound of the trading range in terms of yield which in 10-year space comes in at 175. The fact that 175 is holding for the time being is constructive for the broader range trading thesis as opposed to the camp anticipating a step function higher in yield throughout the course of 2021. While it's still far too early for anything conclusive on this front, we do take solace in the fact that there appears to be some dip buying interest emerging as the quarter comes to an end. Recall we have been focused on the relevance and the potential for flows related to the Japanese fiscal year end once the calendar turns and this key region for investing in treasuries comes back online in the middle of April. In contemplating the end of the first quarter, it's also important to keep in mind the traditional rotational flows given the performance of risk assets during the first quarter of the year. It's safe to assume that there will be some selling in domestic equities and rolling over into the bond market. This should ultimately provide a stabilizing bid and keep that 175 level in 10-year yields off the radar for the time being. A quick glance at the fundamentals suggests that while the reflationary trade continues to be priced into the market, as evidenced by 10-year break-even solidly above 225, what we have yet to see is that translate through to the actual economic data, most notably the core PCE print for the month of February came in at one-tenth of a percent. Now, that was accompanied with an unexpected slowing in the year-over-year pace to just 1.4%. As the market prepares itself for the March, April, and May inflation numbers, it's important to keep in mind that the trajectory that has started 2021 suggests that the bar will be very high over the course of the next several months to bring the three-month annualized rate, which is what the Fed has routinely told us to focus on, back into a range that would concern either monetary policymakers or the market more broadly. Even in that context, however, most of the upside risks for inflation in the near term are going to either be transitory, consistent with a spike in upward pressure on service prices as the economy reopens, 
or simply a reflection of the base effects that are known and will come into play over the course of the next few months. Regardless of the near-term economic data, we don't anticipate that reflationary ambitions will be curtailed at least for the next several months, and it won't be until we're far enough through the 2021 data cycle that one could expect a collective rethink or recalibration of the pace of inflation over the course of the recovery. For the time being, vaccination, optimism, reopening ambitions, and the ultimate translation of more consumer dollars being put to work in the real economy is still expected to lead to a higher inflation profile in the year ahead. Well, Ian, if we've learned anything this week, it's that Suez waters run shallow. Well, narrow at least. And on the topic of narrow, one could make the argument that what we have seen in the treasury market over the course of the last week is a narrowing of the range of consolidation that we have been focused on. Sure, 10-year yields made it to 175, but that appears to be the upper bound, at least for the time being. I think it's pretty safe to say at this stage that that will be the high yield point for the first quarter although there are still a couple more trading days until we make it to April Fool's Day. In that context, the incoming fundamental information over the course of the last week has really solidified this idea that growth and inflation expectations remain and will persist for at least a few more months while the realized data continues to struggle. For example, durable goods disappointed, and more importantly, the year-over-year core PCE print unexpectedly ticked lower to 1.4%. That doesn't do much for the reflationary camp, to say the least. And we're on the same page in that it's pretty likely that 175 is going to represent the upper bound for 10-year yields during the first quarter. That year-over-year core PCE read, excluding 2020, was the lowest since December 2015. And while sure, we are still in the midst of a global pandemic, these figures are going to continue to be distorted by not only fiscal stimulus, but also base effects over the next few months. But nonetheless, it does take some of the wind out of the reflationary narrative sales. Well, you say that we're still in the middle of a global pandemic, but to read the headlines, one could make the argument that the reopening process has already begun in earnest. And what we're witnessing at this stage is a bringing forward of some of the economic upside that one might have otherwise expected in the second half of this year. Recall that when we came into 2021, the prevailing expectations were that we would have a vaccine rolled out and available to everyone sometime in the July-August timeframe. Now, clearly that has been accelerated, and with that transition, we are seeing expectations for economic growth ratcheted higher. My primary concern in this regard is that we find ourselves in a situation where we have a strong first and second quarter, and the market simply extrapolates that over the course of the next three or four quarters, which would lead to medium-term expectations being vulnerable to a mean reversion of the economic data. 
In practical terms, that means that the upside for rates, and potentially risk assets as well, will be limited to the first half of this year. Now, we'll be the first to make the observation that this is consistent with the seasonal patterns. However, there is something more afoot than simply the typical tendency for the Treasury market to perform over the summer months as expectations recalibrate to the realities of the economic data cycle. And this gets at one of the core debates that's been playing out in the market. Is this pickup in economic activity driven by the progress towards vaccination, driven by business reopenings? Is this boost going to serve as a level reset for the pace of consumption going forward? Or rather, will it translate to a one-time jump that I think would be reasonable to anticipate in March and some of the April data? that ultimately retraces back to levels that are more consistent with what we saw before the pandemic or even below what we saw before the pandemic, given some of the behavioral changes that you and I have talked about a lot, Ian, which could linger for years even once COVID-19 is definitively behind us. And further to the point, let us keep in mind that the stimulus efforts out of Washington and the Fed as well weren't really designed to increase potential GDP, nor lead the real economy to some version of escape velocity to a higher plateau of growth. Rather, what lawmakers were attempting to achieve was to create that bridge between the depths of the pandemic and the post-pandemic reality. And as we contemplate what that post-pandemic reality will look like, I think it is important to keep in mind the shifts in terms of telecommuting and working from home will have more staying power than one might have originally assumed at the beginning of the pandemic. Moreover, I'm still worried about the 10 million jobs that the U.S. economy is down versus before the pandemic. Now, a lot of those were frontline service sector jobs, and as a result, the prevailing logic is once the real economy is reopened, that those positions will swiftly become available again and be filled. I'm a bit hesitant of relying too heavily on that assumption, simply because the scales of economies that frontline service sector firms used to be able to enjoy in the densely populated urban centers won't return in the same form. And as a result, that will introduce a degree of uncertainty and limit hiring, particularly in the smaller business sector. And that's especially relevant given the fact that it is NFP week. Looking at private service providing employment, in March and April of 2020, we lost 18 million jobs in that subset of the labor market. And coming out of that initial plunge, there was a meaningful pickup. 11 million jobs returned, which as a share of the overall jobs lost, is 62%. So that's definitely encouraging. But I think what we're more concerned about is the fact that that remaining 38% is not going to be as easily recovered as the jobs that we've already seen brought back. This obviously is going to be a function of just how quickly the service sector is able to retool to the new reality that will start unfolding over summer, but persistent slack in the labor market is going to naturally serve as a drag on growth over the longer term. I'm talking third, fourth quarter, and beyond. Another aspect of the current cycle that mirrors what we saw during the last financial crisis is the fact that a lot of the changes in the labor force produce the type of slack that will provide a cap on real wages. To some extent, 
losing people from the labor force does create a degree of scarcity in the labor market, which would presumably put upward pressure on wages. However, given the nature of why people left the labor market, i.e. additional unemployment benefits combined with the risks of going to work during a pandemic, I suspect that what we'll find is as the economy starts to heat back up, Workers in that 25 to 34-year-old cohort, which was hit particularly hard during the pandemic, will more quickly return to the labor force than they did in the prior cycle. This will serve to limit upside pressure on wages, as well as serve to keep the realized inflation profile in check. Transitioning from some of the economic fundamentals, arguably the biggest event of this past week was Thursday's seven-year auction. And the reason it was so closely watched was that following February's worst ever sevens auction, there was a substantial degree of concern that a similarly terrible auction would be enough to break the top of the yield range and drive some follow-on selling like we saw at the end of February. Now, the seven-year auction was weak. There's no doubt about that. A 2.4 basis point tail had roughly average bidding statistics, but what we didn't see was a wave of selling pressure that followed that somewhat uninspired auction. It also came after twos and fives that were pretty uneventful, to be honest. So really, in my opinion, the March seven-year auction helps lay to rest some of the more dire concerns on primary market demand for treasuries. Let us also not forget that we're still in the period before the Japanese fiscal year end, and the fair amount of the lack of overseas participation at the February seven-year auction was attributed to this dynamic. So the fact that we only had a 2.4 basis point tail at the seven-year, given its relevance to the bear's steepening, I think speaks to the fact that there are dip buyers in the market. This could become even more evident in the wake of the March non-farm payrolls report once the Japanese investor community comes back online and investors calibrate expectations for the second quarter. An NFP is no doubt significant, but we are entering something of an interesting period just given the fact that we have two full weeks without any treasury coupon supply. The next auction is going to be the April 3 year, which is coming on Monday the 12th, and so that removes the potential for any price action driven by auction concessions and should refocus investors on A, the fundamentals of jobs and inflation, but B, some more technical factors now that we've settled into something of a defined trading range with a meaningful inflection and momentum that had been quite bearish, but has now inflected in favor of a rally. I do think that the technical profile in an environment such as this is important especially in the context of the divergence between the actual data and what the market is anticipating the data will be. Recall that the market spent the vast majority of the last 12 months trading beyond the pandemic to the point in which the real economy is reopened, re-engaged, and the sideline workers are brought back in. We're nearing the point, frankly, where this notion should be put to the test. What will growth look like in the new normal? What will be appropriate risk asset valuations as we move forward? A lot of these questions should intuitively be answered over the balance of 2021. The issue quickly becomes how rapidly 
will the market readjust when there is more information at hand, rather than continue to extend the time frame in which investors are anticipating inflation will come roaring back into the system. As it currently stands, even the Fed has made it abundantly clear that 2021 will not be the year in which inflation breaks out. So that puts the focus on 2022, 2023, or even beyond. So in this context, the divergence between realized and expected inflation might attempt to persist into the end of this year, but I suspect that there will ultimately be a reckoning as those positions become increasingly difficult to carry or at least justify, given what we're seeing in terms of the data on the ground. And a look at the economic surprise index reinforces exactly this concern. We've now seen this measure of realized data versus expectations drop to its lowest level since the initial surge out of the pandemic. And while the sustained period of consistent outperformance of the data during 2020 was likely more a function of two suppressed expectations, the fact that we've now seen all of that upside eroded and the surprise index back to levels witnessed in the darkest days of the pandemic is concerning, particularly as the upside offered by stimulus starts to fade. So Ben, what you're saying is that that ship has sailed like the ever given? Nevermore. In the week ahead, the treasury market will have two primary factors with which to contend. The first being the end of the first quarter, the month of March, and the Japanese fiscal year end. All else being equal, we would expect this to be a net positive for treasuries and put downward pressure on yields, particularly in the 10 and 30 year sector. So a bid for duration as books are squared into the end of the quarter, and there's a reasonable amount of duration extension as well as rotation out of equities into bonds. The other consideration is the March non-farm payrolls data report. As it currently stands, expectations are for an increase in non-farm payrolls of 600,000. This is effectively a repeat of the solid March print that we saw, and the consensus is centered around the idea that we're going to see more of the sidelined workers that were displaced at the beginning of the pandemic brought back into the labor market as those frontline service sector firms reopen. Now, this is an expectation that has been in place for some time, and so the fact that it's coming to fruition probably won't provide any meaningful trading direction as long as it's within plus or minus 200,000 of the consensus. What holds the potential to recast growth expectations going forward is a significantly stronger print, particularly on the private payroll side. Keep in mind that monetary policy will continue to be accommodated for the foreseeable future. The Fed has made it abundantly clear that QE will remain in place throughout 2021 and that even beyond tapering, it will still be several quarters before a rate liftoff is actually on the table. So with the backdrop of an extremely accommodative monetary policy, a Fed that would like to see the unemployment rate dip back to 3.5% or below, it's really difficult to argue against, assuming that there will be some upside in the employment data at one point. This leads to one of our lingering concerns, and that is when we think about 2021 as a whole, when we came into the year, the market generally was expecting that the timing of the reopening would focus on the summer months. Let's call it June, July, August, with expectations for everyone to be up and running by September. Fast forward to today, given Biden's expectations for vaccinations to reach 200 million by the 30th of 
April, this will serve to bring forward the timeline of getting the economy reopened. Therefore, what we might find ourselves faced with is a very strong beginning to the year. We've already seen that in the first quarter's data, but carry that through to the second quarter. And the risk is that the market takes that trajectory and simply interpolates it into the end of the year. That leaves the second half of 2021 as particularly vulnerable for underperformance in terms of jobs growth, reflation, and the real economy as a whole. This isn't to suggest that the market has gotten too far ahead of the vaccination process. After all, the path toward mass inoculation is well underway, but rather that the potential to recast growth to a higher plateau by the end of this year might be exaggerated at this particular moment in time. We will need more economic data and evidence that the stimulus seen thus far really has materially changed potential GDP rather than bringing consumption forward to today only to be repaid with higher taxes tomorrow. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And while there are no guarantees in financial markets, the one commitment we can make is not to limit our foolishness to a single day in April, although it's always nice to be celebrated. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. 
Emo-winnets affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.